You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. And thank you, everybody, for coming. It's, it's great to see so many people here. Um, as Jennifer said, my name is Catherine Siancy. I'm an associate professor in the history department at UW-Madison. And it's my pleasure to be chairing the panel today. The subject of our discussion is martial law in Poland, which formally lasted from December 1981 until July 1983. It was on the night of the 13th of December 1981 that Wojciech Jaruzelski, the first secretary of the Communist Party and also the Prime Minister of Poland, went on television to declare a state of martial law. His decision was made in response to increasing anxieties among the communist leadership about the power and influence of Solidarity, Solidarność in Polish, an independent trade union that had been set up at the Lenin shipyards in Gdansk on the Baltic coast the previous year, 1980. Solidarity was the first independent trade union in the communist bloc. And although the communist government allowed it to come into being, and although Solidarity's leadership stated that it was not trying to overthrow communism itself, the party leadership remained fearful and, and its indeed fears increased of the effects that Solidarity might be having on Polish <coughs> society. Jaruzelski and the communist leadership were afraid of what the Soviet Union might do to quell the increasing power and boldness of solidarity within Poland, although it remains unclear as to how far Jaruzelski believed that the Soviets were on the edge of invading and how far this was more about seizing power domestically. What we do know is what martial law meant in practice. It meant that a military junta was established to rule the country, Jaruzelski himself coming from a military background. It meant special paramilitary units and tanks deployed on the streets of Polish cities. It meant that internal travel was restricted, international borders were closed, curfews were implemented, and there was increased censorship of ideas as well as surveillance over the population. And of course, thousands of solidarity leaders were arrested and imprisoned without proper trial, which decapitated solidarity and drove the movement underground. The declaration was met with some demonstrations against martial law, during which some demonstrators were killed, but there was not an all-out civil war in Poland. And as I mentioned at the beginning, ultimately martial law was officially ended in the summer of 1983. So we're meeting for a conversation now because last December marked the 40th anniversary of the declaration of martial law in Poland. And two of my colleagues who will be speaking today, Łukasz Wojcicki and Krzysztof Borowski, decided that we needed to mark this anniversary and discuss the legacies of this watershed event. Now, while anniversaries are quite arbitrary dates, um, we also discussed in our initial meetings about the relevance of martial law, what it means, what it might mean, within the context of a whole series of events and questions that capture our attention today. We therefore look forward to a conversation which we might think about these legacies in the light, for instance, of the COVID-19 pandemic, the refugee and migrant crises at Poland's eastern border, and Russia's ongoing invasion of Ukraine in the light of both Ukrainian responses and also Vladimir Putin's attempts to crack down on dissent within the Russian Federation. 
So I'll now introduce the panelists, each of whom brings a different disciplinary perspective and set of questions they wish to address. And then I'll say a quick word about the format. So our panelists and the order in which they will speak. Our first panelist is Łukasz Wojcicki, who is an assistant professor of Polish here at UW-Madison. Professor Wojcicki is currently working on a book manuscript which has the title Romancing Modernism, Poetics of Re-Enchantment in Polish and Russian Early 20th Century Novels. And he's also researching another book project which will examine the concept of adventure in the context of East Central European post-communist literature. We'll then hear from Brian Porter-Such, who is joining us over Zoom, but actually knows Madison very well, being an alum of our history PhD program. Brian is the Arthur P. Fernow Professor of History at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, and he's the author of several field-defining books. They include When Nationalism Began to Hate, Imagining, Polish, Imagining Politics in 19th Century Poland, which was published by Oxford University Press in the year 2000, Faith and Fatherland, Catholicism, Modernity and Poland, also from Oxford in 2011. And finally, Poland in the Modern World Beyond Martyrdom, which came out with Wiley Blackwell in 2014. And it is a book that I sent everyone to if they want to either begin learning about modern Polish history or get a radically different take than those that are presented in traditional textbooks. And finally, we'll move to Krzysztof Borowski, who is lecturer in Polish studies here at UW-Madison, where he teaches courses on the Polish language and also on Polish culture. Dr. Borowski's research agenda is particularly focused on questions of political discourse in Poland, nationalism, and issues of language and identity more broadly. So the plan is to hear from each of our panelists for about 10 to 12 minutes, and then we'll move into a broader conversation. And I think we all want to stress that we want to hear from everybody. We want to really have this as a, um, a really sort of participatory event. So we look forward your questions and comments a little bit later on. So thank you again, everybody, for joining us. Uh, thank you for putting this panel together. Um, and I will turn it over without much further ado to Łukasz Wojcicki. Uh, thank you, Catherine. And thank you so much to all, all of you for uh, coming here and uh, to Catherine for this wonderful introduction. Uh, so uh, in my presentation, I will focus on, on literary representations of martial law. And through that presentation, I will seek to, uh, to illustrate how the narrative of, of martial law and its, its, its position in, in the larger national narrative has shifted uh, through, throughout the past uh, four decades. So as Catherine mentioned, uh, martial law quelled the 16th month uh, Carnival of Solidarity. Um, solidarity was uh, not only a, a trade union, a labor movement, uh, but also a political, cultural, and moral revolution. Um, it was a massive upheaval that um, at its peak in, um, in the summer of 1981 um, counted close to 10 million people, um, which at that time means uh, essentially every third uh, uh, citizen of Poland was, uh, uh, was uh, uh, signed up for uh, solidarity, which paradoxically also included uh, Communist Party members. Uh, when the martial law suppressed the movement, um, targeting especially the solidarity and opposition leaders, um, this led, naturally, after such a tremendous social upheaval, to a lot of emotions, a lot, uh, a sort of very strong emotional response that had to be channeled um, um, somewhat. 
And so uh, in my uh, presentation, I will, uh, uh, I'll break my presentation into three distinct waves of uh, writing about, uh, about uh, the martial law, starting with uh, the, the decade immediately following the declaration of martial law. Uh, what needs to be said about this first wave is, first of all, something about the uh, about the way this event itself structured the the dynamics of the literary field, um, the phenomenon of underground uh, publications, um, the, the so-called secondary circulation, was uh, was very much present in Polish cultural life before the martial law, but the martial law really intensified uh, and expanded this uh, this form of publication. Uh, it is uh, estimated that close to 1,700 illegal periodicals uh, appeared during that the, the, the during the 1980s. Uh, approximately half of those were uh, uh, related to literature and or culture. Uh, typically, these publications were heavily involved in current political uh, situation, and with them, of course, what happened <laughs> is. Uh, this phenomenon that I refer to as a cultural schizophrenia of Polish uh, literature, where there are two different, uh, different circulations, two different uh, discourses in Polish literature. One, uh, one the officially sanctioned narrative, um, the works that, um, that had the approval of censorship, and a vastly expanding uh, field of cultural production that happened underground, that was illegally distributed throughout, uh, throughout Poland, which included works written in Poland as well as works written in emigration and smuggled into uh, Poland. Uh, and underground literature really at this point becomes mass literature. Um, the, in terms of the, uh, um, the, uh, the, the texts written about martial law uh, itself, um, first we have, the, we have poetry. Which is uh, which is really uh, kind of the sort of immediate response to to martial law, um, because of because of its format and the way it can uh, it can circulate. Uh, the poetry of this period really uh, the poets of this period really felt that they had to respond to this event directly, uh, and maybe sort of going through the shock of uh, the first days of the current. Uh, uh, invasion of Ukraine, uh, we can perhaps sort of recognize that sense of uh, of shock and surprise, but at the same time, this 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 drive um, to to do something, to to somehow get engaged um, in what is happening, uh, and so uh, most of the most of the most of the poetic output of this period uh, had, a, had a set of uh, characteristics. It was uh, it was uh, engaged poetry. Uh, it was patriotic poetry. Uh, had a very uh, was, was focused on uh, values, things like integrity, courage, truthfulness, or sacrifice. These are frequent themes uh, in different in, in different poems. Uh, it was socially engaged. It directly uh, described the events that are happening, the protests, the, the demonstrations, people put in prisons, the experience of imprisonment, the experience of fear. Uh, at the same time. Going back constantly to those to those ethical uh, entities. Um, in terms of tone, it was also very militant, and quite consciously, it invoked Polish or romantic traditions of poetry. Uh, Poland did not exist as a state throughout the 19th century, 
uh, after briefly retrieving uh, its independence um, uh, after World War I, uh, 20 years after it was once again under, found itself under German occupation. And during that peri those periods, it developed uh, a, a very, uh, very specific survival mode, a kind of a way of talking about, about, um, uh, about its traditions, about its role as a nation, about its struggle for freedom, that, um, that the uh, martial law poetry used in order to, um, in order to intensify its emotional, uh, its emotional message. Uh, in that sense, therefore, the poetry of the martial law eliminated the historical difference between then and now, uh, making martial law yet another cycle of this eternal history of constant struggle for liberation uh, of innocent nation fighting against a foreign, uh, foreign invader, foreign authoritarian uh, force. Uh, so in, that, in doing so, it also cast the, uh, this is sort of one of the major uh, sort of narratives of, of the martial literature, it established a clear contrast, a very sort of black and white, very Manichaean opposition between quote unquote us, that is the Polish society, uh, represented by its intelligentsia, by the, by the intellectual elites, members of the opposition, solidarity leaders, and them, that is the Communist Party and its, uh, its repression apparatus, the armored police units, uh, secret service, and other institutions that worked on its uh, behalf. This clear opposition of us and them is a recurrent theme um, uh, throughout uh, throughout this this, this um, uh, literary uh, output, uh, and it's significant that in doing so, very explicitly, the poetry of the period cast the communist authorities as a foreign force. Mm -hmm. It's not so much that the Polish society is divided. Us, the Polish society is united. It is them who threaten it. The, the Communist Party is therefore cast as an outsider, as something that is not part of the society proper. Uh, the prose of this period had a slightly more uh, a difficult challenge. Uh, first thing to note about these texts, which, which start to appear in uh, the early 1980s, 82, 83, is, uh, first of all, their documentary style. Uh, and you can see this even looking at some of these titles. Yarosov uh, Marek Rimkevich, Polish Conversations in the Summer of 1983, Marek Nowakowski, A Report on Martial Law, Jacek Bocheński, uh, After the Collapse, Andrzej Szczypiorski from the Martial Law Notebook, Conversations, Reports, Notebooks, uh, all of those uh, documents and genres that try to stay close to reality, to uh, essentially provide a testimony to what, is, uh, to what is happening. At the same time, the challenge of this literature is to find some kind of a dramatic formula to express the, the larger social drama. Uh, the martial law, by and large, for the majority of the population, was largely uneventful. There were tanks on the streets and soldiers, and there was the curfew, and other issues, but for the most part, it, um, it was a fairly normal experience, especially for those who did not live in big cities. 
uh, it was the drama of the of the of the martial law was largely in this sense of having lost the future, of not having uh, of having lost the hope to change anything about uh, about the system. And so, a lot of these texts try to find these elements of the grotesque, of the absurd, of some kind of a dramatic tension to highlight that um, uh, to highlight that. Um, the, the drama. Uh, the most important, uh, the most uh, well-known probably of all of them is Marek Novakovsky's um, uh, report about the martial law, which is translated into English as uh, canary and other stories. Um, <laughs> quite, um, uh, quite evocative. Uh, one piece that uh, perhaps I should mention here also is, um, is an emigre work by Gustav Herling-Gruzinski uh, titled uh, The Naples Plague in which uh, Grudziński fictionalizes the story of the Naples plague from the 17th century, using it as an allegory for the martial law. Uh, there is a, a certain viceroy in the story who wants to quell a popular revolt in the kingdom of Naples, and he uses the, the epidemic, uh, the plague, as means of controlling the population. Um, which, which is a successful attempt. And the, 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 the parallel between the Viceroy and, the, and General Jaruzelski is, is, uh, is uh, unmistakable in that um, story. Another interesting uh, trend here is uh, represented by Jacek Bocheński's After the Collapse, Stan Pozapaści, which in Polish is a play on words, meaning both the state after a heart attack, a kind of a state of recovery after a heart attack, but also the, the stroke, the collapse, refers to all of Polish society. Uh, it became part of this trend of hospital prose. Um, here, a patient who has some affiliations with the opposition ends up in a hospital, and from that hospital bed experiences the chaos, the fear, the uncertainty of, uh, of the early 1980s. People are coming to hospital, people are being taken, uh, police comes, they ask questions about who is in the hospital, patients hear rumors, but nothing is certain, people come and go and they only hear and see glimpses of things. There's a lot of speculation. And so these types of novels create that sense of, of chaos, of uncertainty, of lack of uh, communication. Uh, so this is largely the uh, the image of the first uh, first wave of uh, writings about the martial law. Of course, it's an incomplete uh, set. There are many, many other titles uh, written about this period, with those being just representative. Uh, and then, uh, maybe before I get to the next slide, in the 1990s, there was a brief um, um, interlude, so to speak. Uh, after the collapse of the communist government, uh, this Manichaean, this black and white version of the conflict between the innocent society and the evil communist government wore itself off. Uh, people started to be uh, a little bit tired with this uh, highly politicized, uh, politicized um, uh, form of culture. Uh, and also after the, after the collapse of the, of the communist government, there were a lot of new problems to deal with. Um, the, the shock therapy and its effects, the transformation of the country from communist to uh, free, market, uh, free market democracy uh, was an extremely drastic uh, transition 
that literature had to somehow accommodate. And so already in the 1980s, late 1980s, literature begins to model a slightly different, uh, a slightly different society, um, looking more at its uh, lost multi multicultural uh, heritage rather than this black and white uh, juxtaposition. Uh, what changed the situation in the early 2000s, um, what I kind of call uh, provisionally uh, sort of return of history or the historical turn, is uh, a couple of events. Uh, first of all, the publication of Jan Gross's um, uh, Neighbors, the destruction of the Jewish community in Dwabne, Poland, uh, and the ensuing controversy and media debate surrounding Polish-Jewish history. Uh, 2004, the opening of the Warsaw <coughs> Uprising Museum and its subsequent activity in promoting um, the, the Warsaw Uprising. 2005, Law and Justice Party, a national conservative party in Poland wins parliamentary elections, which uh, also begins a series of conflicts and discussions about uh, historical politics. 2005 and 2007, the Wallstein's List controversy, where a journalist um, uh, visiting the Institute of National Remembrance smuggles out a list of names of, uh, of informants to the Secret Service and publishes uh, it. Uh, and also debates around the 2007 um, uh, uh, lustration law, the law of screening of public officials uh, for their communist past. These types of debates brought back the question of recent history back to the uh, cultural mainstream. Uh, finally, 2008, the publication of uh, the book S.B. and Lech Wałęsa, <laughs> uh, which uh, the resulting scandal, which also contributed to the tarnishing of this, uh, of this image of, of solidarity as leaders. In this book, the two historians um, uh, present uh, evidence for Lech Wałęsa, uh, who collaborated between 1970 and 1976 with the, um, uh, with the Secret Service uh, before becoming the uh, famed solidarity uh, leader. Um, so uh, one of those, uh, the ways in which this, this turn to history manifested itself is uh, something I observed in my own trips to Poland at the time. If you, if you go, even still, if you go to one of those kiosks uh, that sell newspapers and weeklies in Poland, now you can see an entire rack <laughs> dedicated exclusively to historical issues. Every major uh, newspaper and weekly in Poland now has some kind of a supplement or a special publication dedicated to issues of history. Uh, it once again became a uh, uh, sort of mainstream uh, uh, problem, uh, Poland's, uh, Poland's recent past. So where is literature in all of that? Um, first, uh, around that time appear a few novels. Um, it's definitely a much smaller way. But there are a few novels that uh, uh, are written around the same time that uh, make this narrative of innocent society struggling with the, with the evil uh, totalitarian regime uh, slightly more problematic. Um, for example, very important novel by Zbigniew Kruszynski, The Last Report, uh, tells, uh, presents an ambiguous narrator protagonist who is, uh, who is a graphomaniac, and he is an informant, but a willful 
informant, the secret police, he actually uh, enjoys the fact that he has the possibility of writing these extremely detailed reports about every situation and every person he comes into contact. At the same time, he also becomes an extremely effective opposition leader. Uh, as, 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 a, as a student and as a scholar, he becomes involved in, uh, in the opposition work. And so he works kind of like a double agent. But neither of those two identities become, become, um, uh, becomes prominent. And so it presents this, this ambiguous view of Polish society as, uh, as, as to some extent implicated or, or, or sort of morally um, undecided uh, when, it comes to, when it comes to its response to, to, to the martial law. Uh, the other things to be said about this about this uh, about this uh, literature is that it is predominantly written by the 1970s generation. That is, people who uh, experienced the martial law as children uh, or young adults, uh, and that plays an important role here because their perspective is no longer that of the opposition members, of writers who were uh, arrested and kept in prison, or whose friends were arrested, uh, who had some sort of contact with the opposition members. This is a much more, uh, this, is a this is a prose much more focused around households, around apartments, around families. Once again, pointing to certain ambiguities, presenting families and, and uh, kids who, uh, who have uh, 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 friends whose families are policemen and, uh, and those whose families are opposition leaders, for example showing how much society was actually divided during that period, how, how, uh, how these two realities, that uh, totalitarian one and the oppositional one, how closely connected uh, they were in Polish society. An interesting also phenomenon taking place in the, in the 2000s is the development of um, children's literature dedicated to uh, martial law. Um, I know that uh, passing physical objects is a little bit tricky in times of uh, the pandemic, but uh, I have some samples here for uh, for you if you want to take a look at these books as I uh, go past one to one. Books like Jacek Dukaj's Wroniec, uh, Oh, sorry, I uh, books that uh, present, here are some of the illustrations from these, um, books that present uh, the reality of the martial law but are specifically geared toward, uh, toward younger audiences who don't have direct uh, experience of, of the martial law, uh, either graphic novels or children's books. These are illustrations from uh, Jacek Dukaj's uh, phenomenal Wroniec, um, probably the best illustrated book I've ever uh, read. Uh, and just to conclude, I will mention that there is a, a, a kind of a third wave of return to, uh, to the martial law uh, uh, themes in the latest wave of, um, uh, of dystopian novels written about, uh, about the martial, uh, that uses martial law as the symbolism of the martial law, the themes related to it, uh, to talk about fears and anxieties um, about the current, uh, current politics. Uh, the uh, 
the the threat, the perceived threat to democratic institution uh, institutions uh, from the uh, concurrent government, uh, real or imaginary, uh, and um, I think I will leave the rest for uh, for the for the Q and A uh, session. Uh, here, the the historical ties to the actual historical martial law are much looser. Uh, but the, uh, the, the the imagery, the sensibilities uh, are clearly there. And some of those books, like Shinevich's uh, Plankton, uh, even in their graphic design, uh, um, refer to the symbolism of the uh, of the martial law. You see that little crow there. Uh, my apologies for going over time. Uh, I will <coughs> step down and uh, uh, let <laughs> other participants have their say. Thank, Thank you. you. So So, uh, oh, first of all, just thank, thank you, thank you all so much for uh, for inviting me virtually uh, back to Madison. Um, always, uh, always will hold uh, the University of Wisconsin in a fond space in my heart for the great years I spent there. Even right, right here on my desk is my little Bucky Badger that I keep <laughs> uh, to remind me of my wonderful time at UW. Um, so. Um, my presentation is going to flow very directly uh, into what Wes was just saying. Um, when we think about martial law as a historical moment, most of the time we are presented with, or we recall, images such as these, right? Uh, we recall the internment camps, the violent suppression of strikes, the curfews. Um, the crackdown on the media, the soldiers standing in the cold at, at, at the main checkpoints in the cities, tanks rolling down the street. At the time, uh, the Western press and the Polish intelligentsia, as we've just heard, and, and for many years to come as well, presented this moment as one in which there was a, a sharp conflict between the state on one side and society on the other, as if both of these were coherent, uh, clear-cut, morally distinct universes uh, with, uh, you know, with, with, with clear valuation, positive and negative, on, on each side, and, uh, and a lack of division on each side. More recently, though, among scholars, historians who have studied this, there's been a growing trend to try to recover some of the complexities that are lost by that framing of the event. It's important to, to emphasize that none of, this, none of this search for complexity or nuance is an attempt to exonerate Jaruzelski's military coup, uh, to rehabilitate his legacy in any way. Of course not. Rather, it's just an attempt to understand the more nuanced responses that Poles had to this event, and to acknowledge that society was not at all united in support of solidarity or in opposition to the communists. The situation was far more complex than that simplistic picture would have it. Nowadays, uh, in the last several years, it's become quite common in Poland to hear talk of a, uh, of a wojna polsko-polska, a, a war between Poland and Poland, uh, to, uh, describing the really sharp partisan divisions that, uh, that are so evident in Poland today. 
uh, and many polls express, a, a longing for a time when the nation was more cohesive and united. But that image of unity, that image of lost unity, is very much based on a myth. Uh, in reality, the divisions that are very evident today were always there. And they have roots that extend at least to the period of martial law, actually quite a bit before that. So I'm going to talk about some of those divisions. I want to actually see if we can get a little more specific about this thing called Polish society. So back in 1982, so in the middle of martial law, the Polish government created a new agency called the uh, Center for the Study of Social Opinion, Fellows, uh, in its Polish acronym. Now, the phrase public opinion was, at the time, deemed uh, to be a bourgeois import, so they coined the term social opinion instead. But essentially, it's the same thing. It's a, it's a survey body, and it still exists to this day, one of the most distinguished survey firms uh, in Poland today. Now, throughout the 1980s, data from Cebos uh, was marked poufne, uh, which means, I guess, confidential. Uh, there's another layer of uh, classification called tajne, which means secret. Uh, and that's what was used for like actual government documents that nobody was supposed to see. Uh, these poufne uh, documents were restricted. You, they weren't published. Uh, but they were circulated in a somewhat wider, uh, wider circle of, uh, of readers, um, people with any sort of administrative position, those affiliated with approved press, uh, press outlets, uh, many scholars, uh, sociologists, and others were allowed to see these statistics. Now, not surprisingly, uh, initially and even now, uh, there have been questions about the validity of any survey data taken uh, by a state-affiliated organization at the time. So, in fact, at the time, a group of uh, a group of scholars, sociologists, quietly conducted a replication study uh, to see if Sebos's data. Uh, from the martial law period was, in fact, uh, legit. Uh, they concluded, actually, that the figures that were reported by Sebos did match those that they carried out as well, independently. Uh, so there wasn't any deliberate distortion of the data going on. Now, of course, that concern would be, and was, would people actually tell any pollster the truth about what they felt? Well. Actually, it seems, uh, it seems pretty convincing that people were, uh, were in fact, expressing their actual opinions. Um, here's just one example that would alleviate, I think, uh, those concerns. This is from 1984, and we see that uh, only a third of the responses uh, to this question, whose interests are represented by the PCPR, uh, the PCPR is the Communist Party, the ruling party, Whose interests are represented by that? Well, the right answer, right answer is of course the, the working people, uh, or perhaps the nation, right? Uh, well, only about a third of the people were willing to give that answer. Uh, and uh, so this is the, the sort of response that's being, uh, that's being reflected in this data. Similarly, uh, in, in 1984, uh, we see that very few people were telling bolsters that they trusted the ruling party, the PCPR. Uh, uh, granted, the figure for distrust is also very small. And this is actually a very common pattern we see in the survey data from those, those years. Uh, we see people 
it seems, unwilling to out and out lie about what they believe, but, uh, but we do see quite a number of people retreating to the position Zrudnokovic, it's hard to say, we're not sure, I'm not gonna give you an answer. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, I think we can fairly say that, uh, that, that we are getting some insight into public opinion by this data. Uh, another, uh, another confirmation of that, I think, is uh, in this very same survey, an incredibly high number of people said that they trusted the church, the first column there, uh, that, uh, that they trusted the Roman Catholic Church. That certainly is not uh, an approved answer uh, that you would give to a state-run polling agency if, if you were afraid of saying what you really felt. Uh, just as an aside, uh, that, uh, that statistic is definitely an artifact of its era. Uh, here is a more recent uh, figure about trust in the, uh, the Roman Catholic Church in Poland, showing, uh, yeah, showing quite, quite, a, quite a big change between that time and now. Um, but that strong showing for the church, I think, is yet another reason that we can take these, um, the, these, uh, the, 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 these surveys, these studies, uh, reasonably seriously. Um, now, what do they show us? Well, I think with all that in mind, this, uh, this chart is really quite striking. It shows that there was a widespread, uh, overwhelming consensus in 1983, that the situation was very, very dangerous before the Declaration of Martial Law. Asking what is, uh, was the situation prior to the Declaration of Martial Law a danger to domestic peace? Uh, and uh, overwhelmingly, people were saying, yes, it was. Uh, now, there could be many motivations for this. Uh, they could have been concerned with Soviet invasion. They could have been afraid of the ongoing economic collapse, which was really quite calamitous. Uh, at that particular time. There was certainly fear of clashes between solidarity and the party. The point is that a lot of people in 1981 uh, felt that the country was on a razor's edge and that something was gonna have to give. Uh, and so that sort of sets a stage for how people interpreted uh, the Declaration of Martial Law itself. Uh, even more significant, I think, uh, are these results from that same survey in 83. Roughly equal numbers blamed solidarity and the PCPR uh, uh, for, for the situation. So this image of a society that was aggrieved by the government uh, is, is, not quite test is not quite demonstrated here. In fact, we see a, a populace that is afraid that is unsure, that is confused, uh, and that is, has, feels that there's plenty of blame to go around for what was going on. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not like endorsing this opinion. I'm just saying this is how people at the time felt. And that feeling allows us to understand this result. Uh, did Jaruzelski do the right thing? Was the Declaration of Martial Law a good idea, or was it a bad idea? Uh, again, this is 1983, uh, that, when this was asked. Um, it's time, virtually. Uh, in other words, Poland was split pretty, down, pretty much down the middle, whether martial law was the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. And interestingly, this survey from 1983 
has uh, more division, a more evenly divided country than subsequent surveys. Uh, we can see this sentiment expressed even more strongly if we jump ahead a bit into the 1990s when we no longer have to worry about people you know, uh, not wanting to reveal their proper opinions at all. If we look at the questions asked uh, for the decades following the fall of communism, we see that at no point uh, did uh, the response justified, that Yaruzelski was justified in doing what he did in 1981, we see at no point did that opinion ever lose its plurality of support. Uh, that, uh, you know, that at some points it even had a majority support. Uh, so this idea that Polish society was the agreed party here uh, is just not borne out by the opinion surveys, either during uh, the last years of communism or in the Third Republic after communism. Um, so um, this shouldn't lead us to think, though, and this is important, that, that people were happy about the situation after the de declaration of martial law. In fact, in uh, 1984, uh, people were asked in a very uh, interestingly designed survey to evaluate all the various periods in post-war Polish history, going back to 1945. And you can see here that only a third had any positive sentiment about the actual time they were living in, uh, right, right then, since, since martial law was declared. Um, it is worth noting, though, and this is, I think, what's very interesting about this survey, is that we don't see here a repudiation of the Polish People's Republic in general. We see a pretty harsh judgment about the current moment. Um, but if you look back at some of the earlier uh, graphs, or earlier uh, lines on this chart, you see some surprises. Uh, for example, the oft-heard claim that the 1970s which was uh, the time of Edward Gieck, the time of where consumerism was most uh, fully developed, when incomes were highest in Poland. That's often, was often referred to as the, the golden years of the PRL, but that actually <laughs> was not viewed as a particularly favorable period by uh, all that many people. In contrast, the period under Gamuta before 1970 uh, was, in fact, viewed quite fondly by quite a lot of people. Um, and I think it's very worth noting, uh, although this isn't our topic for today, but very worth noting that uh, the periods from 1945 to 1948, the period uh, during which the, um, the uh, struggle for power was going on and the communists were in the process of seizing power, is actually the, the, the site of the most fond memories. Uh, from people living in the 1980s. And nowadays, one very often hears in Poland the depictions of that era as a time when uh, Poland, Poland was engaged in this doomed struggle of resistance against, this, uh, uh, against the, uh, the, the new post-war order. Uh, but yet, that isn't, doesn't seem to be how people were remembering it in, 19, in, in the 1980s. Despite the low assessment of the period uh, up in the early 1980s, um, we see, and this is another big surprise, I think, uh, a strong level of support for the government's policies, uh, specifically economic policies, in the middle of the decade. Uh, here you can see the successive collapse 
in that support. But it is really worth noting that as late as 1985, there is a great deal of public legitimacy being granted to the, 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 the party, uh, much more than certainly I would have expected before I saw any of these, uh, any of these figures. Of course, it's very significant that those numbers were eroding uh, very steadily and actually quite rapidly. That's hardly surprising because more and more people were um, perceiving the economic situation as bad. And uh, on this one, <laughs> that is, they're, they're perceiving the economic situation bad mainly because the situation was really bad. Uh, the, fear, the, the economic collapse of the late 1980s is really undeniable by, by anybody who, uh, who was alive at the time. I was living in Poland at that, during this period, and I can, I can tell you those were dark years. Uh, and uh, they were dark years also, not just on any you know, abstract economic metrics, but in terms of popular sentiment as well. That, I think, is most poignantly revealed by this very depressing and distressing uh, uh, survey. Uh, that is, you know, what are the prospects? What's going to be happening in the future? And what we can see is that with each successive year, as we move to the late 1980s, people are more and more convinced that uh, whatever the future is going to bring, it's not going to be good. That uh, there's, uh, there's, there's, things are going to get worse before they get better. And in fact, this is exactly what turned out to be true. Nonetheless, despite all of this, even in 1987, a slight, but still a majority of Poles were willing to say that the Communist Party, quote, served society well. Uh, again, the image of society supporting the opposition uh, and an isolated state on the other side is just not borne out by public opinion research. Uh, although by the end, of course, the PZPR had lost nearly all of its support, and this set the stage for that moment in 1989 when the uh, PZPR was totally, totally humiliated, devastated by by, uh, uh, by the elections of the summer of 1989, which essentially wiped the party out and led to their, their disbanding uh, uh, just shortly thereafter. Uh, but I think it's important to, rec to notice that, uh, that this was the result of a very recent loss of support by the party. Uh, and this helps us understand why in coming elections in the 1990s, the successor party to the PZPR the Alliance of the Democratic Left, or SLD, uh, very quickly was able to recover. Uh, that helps us make that a lot more understandable. And it also shows us that even as the support for the party was declining, uh, support for the opposition was not really growing that much. Um, there, there wasn't a lot of trust and support for solidarity or how whatever people understood by the label opposition. Sure, it was growing, but it wasn't growing very far, and it wasn't growing as fast as the Communist Party support was falling. So all of this data from the 1980s gives us a more nuanced picture of how Poles experienced martial law and the times that followed, and the Communist era more broadly. We can pinpoint now more accurately when disillusionment in the party became per pervasive and recognized that it happened only at the very end. And we can finally put aside the old narrative that describes the party as devoid of popular support, 
uh, as the party ruling over a nation of anti-communists. That just never was the case. Instead, opinions in the broader Polish society were very divided, and they would remain so. A decade after the fall of communism, those who remembered the communist era negatively were virtually tied with those who viewed it positively. This is definitely not the impression one gets from talking to members of the Polish intelligentsia or reading works of, uh, well, reading most works of Polish uh, literature, which, uh, which really did perpetuate, I think, certainly in the 1990s, uh, this, this, this image of a sharp division, uh, a division that uh, was between uh, an artificial uh, totalitarian uh, uh, government and a subjugated people. That is just not borne out by the way people were actually remembering the communist uh, era, uh, people outside the elites. Uh, in fact, um, this is uh, this is quite a uh, quite a startling uh, chart. This again from two thousand. This one's two thousand three, um, showing that um, only eleven percent, eleven percent of the people surveyed were willing to say that uh, life uh, was harder in the PRL. No, they think actually uh, life is, uh, you know, it's actually harder now. No, that's not to say they didn't prefer the post-communist era, uh, but they, they did see the life uh, uh, before 1989 as an easier existence for them. Moving closer to our own day, we can see that the attitude towards the socialist system very, very quite significantly based on one's age cohort. Uh, and what's noteworthy here, and I think this plugs in directly to what, uh, what Lukasz was just saying, what, uh, what's clear here is that the most negative sentiments, the strongest negative sentiments towards the communist era are among those who did not experience it, right? Those who were too young to remember it uh, or who were born after the communist era ended. They, their knowledge of this time has come from popular culture, uh, literature, and most importantly, school textbooks, which, which have perpetuated this image, uh, a, a very unnuanced, a very, uh, uh, frankly, oversimplified understanding of what the, what the, the experience of this, this time uh, was subjectively for the people who lived through it. And so I think it's a reflection of the fact that nowadays in Poland, very much nowadays, but really for quite some time, the people writing the history books and the people teaching about this topic are really not reflecting the diversity of opinion that actually existed uh, in, in that time. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you everyone for uh, coming. I have quite a few uh, direct quotes in my short presentation, so I hope you'll uh, forgive me for reading what I have prepared for um, today. Okay. So according to Encyclopedia Britannica, martial law denotes, and I quote, a temporary rule by military authorities of the designated area and time of emergency when the civil authorities are deemed unable to function. End of quote. Definition reminds us that while the effects of martial law may differ, a suspension of civil rights is a shared commonality. And I quote once again, although temporary in theory, the definition continues, a state of martial law may in fact continue indefinitely. 
and here are some of uh, some possible questions. So, but what if martial law in Poland did not end in the summer of 1983, but has transformed and continued to this day? What if former victims became future oppressors? And what if, due to cyclical time, Poland is doomed to repeat its historical mistakes? So these are some of the problems that uh, I would like to briefly discuss today, implicitly or explicitly, based on the Netflix TV series 1983, uh, released in 2018. Promoted as the streaming platform's first dedicated Polish series, 1983 paints a bleak picture of an oppressive Polish state in which the martial law never ended. Al Gore won the 2000 US presidential elections, and Poland entered the 21st century under the enlightened leadership of the party. So in this series, um, bomb attacks of uh, March 12, 1983, in three major Polish cities allowed the unnamed party to seize the control of the country, which continues for the next 20 years. Mixing cyberpunk aesthetics with evergreen Orwellian symbolics, the series portrays a modern, technological, yet oppressed nation, whose members learn to obey the authorities, even if only superficially, except for a small group of rebels called Lekka Brigada, the Light Brigade. Co-directed by no other than Agnieszka Holland, and by the way, all four co-directors are female, 1983 appears as yet another mass entertainment product about, the about an impossible future. Yet, constant allusions to Polish history, including the most recent post-2015 period, make it a trans-temporal study of Poland as we knew it and Poland as we know it, through the persistent exploration of the ruled versus rulers dynamics. And now I quote, so 1983 imagines a terrifying alternate reality, but ignores the real dangers that Poland faces today, argues the New Republic in this series review. Another editorial seems more convinced, and I quote here, are these dark fantasies of cribbing authoritarianism becoming reality, asks the Guardian's Christian Davis. So 1983's Orwellian twist is indeed impossible to miss. With its suggestive title, confiscating books for police investigations, and a whole gamut of stat state apparatchiks, more or less convinced of serving the good cause, and sometimes dreaming of a one-way escapade abroad, uh, the oppressive system is given by default. Like Big Brother's prying eyes, public signposts remind everyone about their role and place in the supposedly safe, peaceful, and prosperous nation. We protect our citizens every day, uh, one of the signs says. Another one says, together we create peace and prosperity. They read as if taken verbatim from the pre-1989 press and government media. At the same time, even those employed to surveil and control the nation develop both public and private faces, as was the case in Poland's history. For instance, when Inspector Janusz subordinate asks to quote-unquote borrow one of the confiscated books, Janusz recommends a better reading choice, naturally for further investigation. The former book turns out to be J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. The latter is George Orwell's 1984. Another book in the investigation file is Anna Mickiewicz's The Forefathers' Eve, whose theater adaption is later banned by one of the top figures in the party. 
All this just 15 minutes within the first episode. The Polish spirit of disobedience is not yet entirely lost. It does, however, seem lost on Poland's young generation, whose many members decided to indulge in a controlled version of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. <laughs> the party doesn't care about underground concerts with punk rock music literally telling people to shut down their TVs and open up windows, as long as young people have an outlet to satisfy their basic urges. The sad constatation becomes even more forceful when pronounced by a Polish-Vietnamese businessman named Wujek, or uncle. An insider-outsider uh, insider character collaborating with the oppressive regime while supplying weapons to the rebels. Boasting about his omnipresent and omniscient spying technology, he makes Inspector Yanov realize how little he knows about the younger generation. With illegal data collected from smartphone-like devices of 10 million young Poles, Vujek is like a giant tech CEO with access to every text, every photo, every location or connection that young people's quasi-cell phone devices send or make. Do you know what they talk about? He asks Janów before diagnosing a whole generation. And here he continues. Not a single word about freedom. Not a word about an uprising. Nothing, he says. Twój kraj po prostu stracił duszę. Your country has simply lost its soul. These words ring especially true for Agnieszka Holland, who doesn't hide her frustration with young Poles' indifference to politics, especially in the last seven years or so. And here's a quote. Throughout Polish history, the young people wanted to fight, and they had to be held back by the older people, she said, quoted by The Guardian. And she continues. But in our situation now, the problem is that young people do not want to fight. They are not interested in the kind of fights that were traditional Polish fights, romantic opposition to an oppressive reality, end of quote. With the 2015 victory for Prawie i Sprawiedliwość, the Law and Justice political party, Poland has, in a somewhat Sarmatian, unrestrained manner, turned its attention internally rather than externally, indulging in EU skepticism, anti-migrant rhetoric, violation of constitution, and, quote-unquote, improving its international image while accomplishing the exact opposite. Waves of subsequent protests and strikes have attracted hundreds of thousands of demonstrators, largely recruiting from the middle and older generations. While women's massive strikes made the front page of the New York Times and other outlets, sociologists already warned about a stark divide within Poland's young generation, with women taking a liberal, left turn while men entertain French right-wing movements and conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theory or not, some characters in the series believe that Poland's enemies are not located within the nation itself, but outside of it. General Świętobór, right here on the slide, is a case in point. Tracing his heritage to a little-known medieval Pomeranian prince, Świętobór fights his fight, plotting against an quote-unquote evil empire for a brighter future. In that future, Poland is well, safe, and strong by the power of its identity, culture, and sovereignty, and not the nuclear arsenal that has been secretly developed over the years. Inquired about details, Świętobór tells his aide about, quote, another, not as obvious, end of quote, empire 
that threatens Poles and Poland. And here, here I quote, you would welcome it with open arms, he says, seduced by promises of wealth and freedom. And then, before you knew it, your identity and sovereignty, your cultural identity, would be taken away, he concludes. And he continues, sold a thousand times on all the, on all the world markets. Faced with the possibility of an unequal, lonely fight, Shintobur has no doubts. I'd rather die a Pole than live under that this empire, end of quote. <coughs> While a Soviet invasion in the early 1980s continues to be a talking point in Polish public discourse, Świętobór's words sound eerily familiar to anyone familiar with the post-2015 anti-EU rhetoric. Accused of unnecessarily or even illegally meddling with Poland's internal affairs, the European Union continues to be presented as a vital threat to national interests, best epitomized by recurring anti-German tropes. Ironically, it is then Świętobór, a high-level military official who seems receptive to Agnieszka Holland's call for a romantic sacrifice, although from an entirely different side of the political spectrum. Okay, uh, so in this series, romanticism remains something that the country's minister for national defense cherishes, at least officially. Caught in a short conversation with Władysław Blis, one of the nation's most powerful people, he declares his naive love for Poland, motivated by some higher ideas. His interlocutor, Lise, is more of a realist when he realizes that what once appeared as a virtue has now turned into fortunism. And I quote, Were we motivated by our love of power? He asks, as if thinking out loud. Faced with a textbook answer by our love of Poland, he ironically responds, When did we lose our love for our country? So unlike his interlocutor, Lise seems to have no illusions about the private not public motivations for the power grab that took place 20 years ago in the series. His disillusionment stems from the fact that he sees the reality for what it is and not for what he wants it to be. Meanwhile, his counterpart lives in the romantic bubble of love for Poland that dictates its, that its history and people be controlled. It might have been a change, but it was a good change, or dobra zmiana in Polish. 1983 is the journey to find truth about ourselves, said Agnieszka Holland in the official series featurette. If that is the case, then the series' conclusion is both pessimistic and optimistic. Pessimistic, because consumed with consumerism and pursuit of individual happiness, Poles had forgotten that nothing is a given, including democracy. Optimistic, because the young generation still has the time and potential to turn things around and make sure that Poland is not yet lost, is not yet lost. Thank you.